0: About 20 years ago at a charity benefit supper, the host introduced my wife to the guest seated next to her. He owns and helps run a sweet company, said the host, and my wife heard his name as Mr. Marsh. As casual conversations struck up, my wife then turned to Mr. Marsh and asked, what kind of sweet company? And he said, we make dog food. It was only later as we drove home that we realized the initial introduction had been garbled and unclear. In fact, the man's name was not Mr. Marsh, but Mr. Mars. And it had been Forrest Mars, one of the leaders of Mars Corporation, with characteristic modesty, deftly displaying some humorous tact. And while dog food might sound like a joke, it wasn't even a white lie. It was the truth. As you'll find out this week, Mars Corporation has a huge pet care business but it also has its own think tank, which you might not necessarily expect from a company made famous by Snickers and M&Ms. And my guest this week has worked for that think tank since 2007. So, We're not here to talk dog food. Well, not really. We're completing capitalism. That's the book authored by Bruno Roche and my guest this week, Jay Jacob. We're here to talk about what Jay calls the economics of mutuality. That's a way of doing business that does well by doing good in part by measuring three forms of capital that are often not measured at all or nearly as much anyway as that fourth form that dominates our thinking, that would be financial capital. Jay's here to show you as an investor and or a business professional that you're going to be scoring suboptimal results if you're only measuring profits. All that and more on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker
1: Investing podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner.
0: Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. It is August and I'm rubbing my hands together a little bit because it's authors in August. Yep, for the last few years whenever we turn the calendar page to August, we get to start talking to authors, authors of books That interests me, authors of books on topics like investing or business or life. Yep, the three things that I focus Rule Breaker investing on, investing, business, and life. We're going to have a heavy emphasis this particular week on business with certainly some investing and life thrown in. My guest coming up very shortly is Jay Jacob, the author of the book Completing Capitalism. Now, before I get started with this interview with Jay, I want to mention what's up for next week. So you can buy the book and read ahead some. Next week, we're going to have author Jeremy Brown. He's not only the author of this book, Influenza, The Hundred-Year Hunt to Cure the Deadliest Disease in History, but Jeremy's also a veteran emergency room doctor, but today serves as the director of the Office of Emergency Care Research at the National Institute of Health. So we're going to get his insights on everything from the Spanish flu of 1918 to the COVID flu of 2019 next week on Rule Breaker Investing. But now, without further ado, let me welcome in my friend and guest, Jay Jacob and the Economics of Mutuality. Jay Jacob joined Mars Catalyst in 2007, where he's been leading several critical components of the framework they call the Economics of Mutuality. Since 2014, for instance, he's directed the joint research partnership on the Economics of Mutuality that Catalyst has with Oxford University's Saeed Business School, where Jay is a regular guest lecturer. He is most relevantly for this interview, the co author with Bruno Roche of the economics of mutuality book, Completing Capitalism. I should mention Jay attended American University, just a couple blocks from where I live, right here in Washington, D.C., before studying in England, earning eventually a doctorate in modern history from Oxford University St. John's College. He's based in the Mars Global Headquarters in McLean, Virginia, outside Washington, D.C. And finally, I want to mention that jay's presently serving on the forming task force here at the birth of our motley fool foundation of which i am the chairman jay thanks for all your help by the way and welcome to rule breaker investing
1: pleasure to be here david thank you for inviting me
0: it's a delight and jay in many ways i think your framework which as i've mentioned you call the economics of mutuality was prompted by one of the leaders of the mars corporation of course many of us know the candy you should also know if you don't dear listener It's a pet food giant as well, but it's a massive, private, family, multi-generational enterprise. And one of those family members, Jay, asked a beautiful question. What was that question?
1: That question, David, was uh, posed by John Mars, who was one of the three owners of the family at that time. And he asked simply, what should the right level of profit be for the company?
0: And what year was that, Jay, and what did that spawn?
1: Uh, he asked that question what should the right level of profit be for the company in late 2006 just as i was joining the company and it was a fascinating question to get from a shareholder because typically what's behind a question like that would be something like uh, how much can we possibly squeeze out of our value chain partners to get as much uh, profit as we possibly can but actually what john mars was asking his ceo and a cfo at that time was something quite different and it was something he explained to us later as uh, we're only as strong as the weakest link in our value chain and if we're taking too much more than is our right uh, we others could become uh, in need and you could create a squeezing effect among your partners that actually creates a disequilibrium and disadvantages the company so we really need to know is there a right level of profit
0: mm. And such a telling. The reason I called it a beautiful question, in addition to my love of the book of beautiful questions, uh, a previous author in August, uh, but I love it when a beautiful question is asked. It reframes the world. uh, And it probably, maybe Jay, does take a long-term oriented, perhaps private company and often family multi-generational to ask a beautiful question like that. Now, that was asked in front of or near you. And that that touched off a lot of work for you over the coming decade.
1: It did, because the CEO and the CFO basically said, you know, if we go to one of the big uh, banks like a Goldman Sachs or if we go to a McKinsey uh, with that question, we know what the answer is, which is as much profit as you possibly can get. And that's not the question. Uh, that's not the answer to the question uh, that, that we're really looking for. And so uh, Bruno Roche, who is uh, my, my co-author in this book. Uh, also a great uh, friend in this work and a a partner on economics and mutuality in every sense. He's the chief economist of Mars, or was up until the end of last week, uh, and also was the managing director of Catalyst. And that question was initially brought to him as the leader of the internal think tank of Mars, which we call Catalyst, which has been around since the 1960s to challenge uh, orthodox business practices. So it was a good place to kind of take up that research and start to look at that question of what the right level of profit should be. And for us, it was the kind of question that you would always dream about, and it really opened the door to do some very counterintuitive type of work uh, into what a, a what a business model actually should look like, playing by the rules of the game of the current economy uh, as we move forward into it.
0: And before we get into some of your answers and the way that you rethought capital, um, we'll talk about that in just a sec, but before we go there. I am always interested in Mars. A lot of us in the D.C. area know vaguely that this very large corporation that has something like $38 billion in sales, and those of us who grew up with M&Ms, we're big fans of a lot of your products, but it's always been described to me anyway, as a very secretive, very private company, very family-oriented. So, Jay, I'm wondering, could you just kind of briefly lay out how is Mars organized? Because you're describing a, it sounds like a think tank that operates autonomously within this large company that I didn't think was a think tank I thought it was candy and pet food
1: Absolutely and first I'll actually address your your comment about Mars being known as being secretive you know I think the Willy Wonka story was actually developed around uh, around Mars just this idea of this family owned privately held uh, business that made chocolate mm. was was very very quiet and the global headquarters is actually uh, hidden away And you've been there, uh, David, in McLean, Virginia, which is just outside of Washington, D.C. And we have as a neighbor a mile up the street, the Central Intelligence Agency. And the joke in the area is that there's two secret organizations, but only one is discreet. And we know (laughs) which one that is. (laughs) (laughs) Mars is is known for iconic chocolate brands uh, such as Snickers, uh, M&M's, Twix, uh, Galaxy. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of, of brands including many billion-dollar ones. Uh, And also, Wrigley's was added to that portfolio in 2007, 2008, with a a really major acquisition, the the big chewing gum and sweets uh, confectionery company. But actually, the largest uh, business segment uh, at Mars, and we're not really known for it as much, is uh, Pet Care. And Pet Care includes probably 50% uh, pet food uh, for all types of animals, but mostly for dogs and cats, so pedigree, whiskers, caesars, royal canin, uh, I am. I mean, there's just there's dozens of uh, of brands, mm. and businesses that are on the pet food side, uh, including some high, very highly nutritious uh, type pet foods. But then on the other side is uh, pet health and it's veterinary health care. So Banfield, Blue Pearl, these are some of the the veterinary clinics for for pets, and I think we've got the most of them, at least the largest number of them around. I say we have actually now moved from Mars, but uh, we'll get into that later.
0: We will get into that later, and I really was remiss not saying pet care because pet food is just half of that. Uh, of course, pet services, pet care, not just huge for Mars, and it is, but such a huge category, a whole industry today where there are some wonderful and have been public companies that we've picked and recommended for some of our members over the course of time. So,
1: Indeed, and also uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention we also have or Mars has a food segment uh, built around uh, rice and also uh, organic seeds and pasta sauce, spices and so forth. But it's a smaller business segment. Mars really has these kind of two super segments. And uh, Forrest Mars Sr., who was kind of the the, the genius who owned and ran the company uh, on his own for about 60 years up until about 1970, uh, he created this uh, this think tank unit, which is quite quite unique. And actually there have been organizations that have come in and been hired to benchmark us uh, against other companies, uh, similar types of units, and they've never been able to do it successfully. And basically the way Catalyst functions is quite uh, quite unique uh, in many ways. One is that we have a failure metric. Uh, so here we're supposed to challenge orthodox business thinking, and we have a ring-fenced budget, so that gives us a lot of freedom to go out and find what the next big idea is and then translate that into something that's very practical and applied. But if we don't fail enough in doing that, we actually get penalized in our bonuses. And this is just extraordinary and very counterintuitive. But if you think about it, it's not so strange because if you're going to be asked to, uh, to have a breakthrough or transformational type of, of solution that you're delivering every time that you go out there, you've got to uh, be incentivized to take the kind of risks that lead to, you know, nine failures. And then that 10th one actually is going to move the needle in a huge way.
0: And are every one of those failures, Jay, legitimate, or do you sometimes pad it with a totally ridiculous question or idea and get to chalk it up to a failure? (laughs) Well,
1: I think we're we're pretty reserved in in what we go after. We we do our research, but we also know that uh, a lot of the next big ideas for business, oddly enough, are in academia and academics typically have no idea. Uh, They're they're very theoretical and abstract and, in, formulating these big ideas. And they have no idea actually how to practically apply it in a business sense. So we have to have a really unique makeup in our team. And so we have people that need to act as a bridge who can have the credentials to be peers of, uh, of academics. And we often have a lot of PhDs across different disciplines. And we, we co-publish on, on some of the things we co-develop with the academic partners. But we have to be really ground, well-grounded in business and have those relationships across the MARS company and now across other companies that we're working with in the new setup uh, that enable us to really understand what the business people need and how to go about practically applying what it is we do. Otherwise, there's no point.
0: All right. Thank you, Jay. And thank you for that overview of Mars and your experiences and where you came from. Let's go into the book now. Uh, Most of us, especially investors, when we hear capital, we think of one type, money, what you call financial capital, but a a keystone of completing capitalism, the book that you wrote with Bruno Roche, is your focus on the other three forms of capital. Now, what are they, and would you briefly explain each?
1: Absolutely. If you look at the management literature, David, you'd actually find that there are references to human capital, social capital, and natural capital, in addition to financial capital. So that's, I think, why Financial capitalism is called what it is just to to set it apart. And yet people, when they hear the word capital in a business context, they automatically think money. We really want to expand that concept and expand the definition of performance as well to include non-financial forms of capital, which actually create great value. For, uh, for companies and for their stakeholders. So I'll start with human capital and say a few words about that. Human capital is a form of people capital, of course, and it's expressed at an individual level in terms of well-being in the workplace. And so what we've been able to do uh, with this new business model innovation we describe in the book Completing Capitalism, which we call the economics of mutuality, is, uh, is create a, a kind of a universal, relatively simple, easy-to-use, uh, stable uh, approach to collect and analyze the kind of data that will determine within any corporate cultural context, any cultural context, really, what the true drivers are of well-being among that particular workforce. So every workforce is going to have a slightly different makeup, and what is important to them will be slightly different. If you don't know what is important to your workforce, you can't really craft the interventions that you can once you do know that will grow the human capital in that company along those variables, that are most important to that workforce, and by so doing, get payoffs like talent attraction, talent retention, and optimization of people's performance when they really feel purposeful and that their needs are being met. The second form of capital is a much more complex one, uh, and it's called social capital, but uh, spending a number of years actually working on trying to crack these forms of of capitals in terms of how you measure them simplistically, robustly, uh, like you would measure financial capital, but also in ways that are that are simple and stable and can be utilized in any business situation to make them practical for business people. They can't be too complex. Uh, this social capital, actually, when you first look at it, uh, you find that there are maybe sixty to seventy different ways in which you can explain what social capital is, and that's far too complex for business to use. And so we were a bit intimidated by that at first, uh, but we brought in some some leading sociologists, cultural anthropologists, development economists to help us kind of crack this and when we did, we found that in all of the experiments that we ran in different markets around the world uh, from uh, working with uh, un- from working with poor cocoa farmers in west africa to uh, to poor coffee farmers in in Africa and in places like Papua New Guinea to uh, distributors of chewing gum and in, uh, in the in the cities and towns of Vietnam, to looking at things in more, in more developed contexts, developed market contexts, we found the same results over and over, that there were only three variables to describe social capital that kept appearing that together accounted for about 8, 75 to 80% of what the social capital space were. And those are simplistically, as we have longer definitions, but trust, social cohesiveness in a community, and the capacity of that community to work collectively towards a common good.
0: And we'll talk about, it. in fact, we're going to talk about each of the measurements you have for these three forms in just a little bit. But what is the final non-financial type of capital that you've identified, explored, and defined?
1: And that would be natural capital, and that's about environmental resources. But when corporations tend to look at at uh, natural capital, they tend to look at it in what's called an outputs approach, which is really about external reporting and benchmarking. And it's usually one, one metric and its uh, carbon footprint. There's nothing wrong with carbon footprint, but in a business model innovation like this, we wanted to create tools and techniques that uh, managers could actually use to proactively measure to more resource efficient, uh, productive outcomes while leaving a smaller environmental footprint. And so we took an inputs approach and Mm. with partners, we were able to to find a number of metrics that were, again, simple and stable that would account for more than 80% of all of the natural resource inputs that go into the manufacture of anything.
0: And so Jay, one of the, I think I'd say one of the critical insights of completing capitalism is that each of these three additional forms of capital should not be measured by simply converting them back to dollars. In fact, Jay, you take the so-called triple bottom line companies somewhat to task. These are companies, of course, that try to measure more than just their financial profits. But your criticism of them is that when trying to measure their social progress or their treatment of the environment, they're just trying to convert those measurements back into dollars.
1: You've put your finger on something that's quite important that uh, often confuses people about economics and mutuality when we first have a conversation. They may say, oh, isn't that just a triple bottom line? And ultimately, you just have financial conversions to account for the value of each form of capital. And actually, we find that to be very distorting uh, of the approach. First of all, we found no accurate way in which you can possibly convert things like Uh, trust, social cohesiveness, capacity to work collectively, prospect of upward mobility, which is one of the metrics we use to measure uh, human capital. I can go through all of these different uh, variables that we use as our metrics and trying to convert those into financial capital equivalents is just a guess. It's a wild guess. More more importantly, it actually uh, creates a a situation where, where you're putting way too much value and emphasis on one form of capital that's actually significantly diminishing in value vis-a-vis the others. And if you could bear me with me for just a moment, I'll I'll explain that. When Milton Friedman introduced financial capitalism exactly 50 years ago this year, it was because there was a form of scarcity that existed in the global economy, and that was money. But there was an excess of natural resources. There was an excess of labor. uh, So there was was a very different kind of form of scarcity than there is Hmm. today. Through Friedman's uh, success, in applying that model in businesses and business schools all over the world, that's still the number one model that's used and taught everywhere. A, a huge amount of financial capital was, was able to be created in the system. And now, I don't know whether you would agree, David, but I think there's a, a dysfunctional excess of financial capital in the system now being exacerbated by these constant quantitative easings uh, that have been going on.
0: It does seem like there is a lot of financial capital out there these days, Jay. Um, if we just look at our interest rates, which are near zero, I always thought of interest rates as the cost of money. So if interest rates are near zero, the world is a wash in financial capital. And as you're pointing out, it's very different from 50 years ago in Milton Friedman.
1: Yes, exactly. And you know we're starting to see negative interest rates as uh, the norm rather than the exception as well, which is another huge warning sign that there's just far too much financial capital in the system. But here we've moved 50 years through that uh, approach to try to fix the shortfall of financial capital. And we've really paid little to no attention to these other forms of value, these other forms of capital that I mentioned that are non-financial in nature. Those are now, by many measures, in significant deficit uh, vis-a-vis financial capital, which is in a significant dysfunctional excess. So just by the laws of supply and demand, social, human, and natural capital value is going way up at a time when you only me- manage what you measure in business. You probably heard that expression. And if you don't have the metrics to measure and, and the techniques to mobilize these non-financial forms of value in a business that are going up in value, you're going to be really operating suboptimally. So that's why we really need to to broaden the definition of performance and add these new metrics, these new non-financial forms of capital to the equation for businesses will be left out.
0: Yeah, you really can't, in the end, measure environment through dollars. Can you, triple bottom line? Because you could end up just with a whole bunch of dollars and no environment left, and you can't buy that environment back with those dollars. So these things really don't translate. I know a big focus of your work is making sure not only do we measure each of these forms of capital, which we're about to talk about uh, independently, but we also maybe need to pay with them. We need to remunerate them with like kind. You can't just pay off the green environment with green backs. Anyway, we'll get to that in a sec. But Jay, before you lay out for human capital, the way that you think business should be measuring human capital. How did you arrive at the right measurements? What's been the process by which you discovered the ways to measure human capital, social capital, natural capital?
1: Well, again, one of the great uh, benefits and advantages that we have in working for a company like Mars that we did at this time, that we did this work, uh, was that it was a very long-looking kind of uh, corporate mindset. And so uh, these were values that were instilled in the in the company from the very beginning to really take a long perspective, which is why we have a catalyst that's out there to challenge orthodox business thinking. And so we were given a lot of latitude to invest some of our resources in the internal think tank for actually five years in the beginning just to crack the metrics pieces. And to do that, we could not do it alone. I mean, first we start with a, with a massive kind of literature review to make sure we're not reinventing the wheel, that we can learn as much as we can from others that have worked in this space. Then we actually go out and we recruit the right kind of, uh, of really substantive expertise as partners. And very often these are professors in universities. I mentioned a little earlier, development economists have been our partners. And so we brought all this kind of expertise together along with anthropologists that we recruited from leading universities that had spent many years living in the, uh, in the kind of uh, coffee growing areas or cocoa growing areas that uh, were relevant to our business, but also would help us crack this, uh, these things that were so difficult to uh, to actually measure in ways that were robust, but also simplistic and stable and, and universal, and and through working with those partners and doing five years really of experimental work in the field, we were able to uh, to to crack these uh, the, these metrics.
0: All right, Jay. So. You've done a good job kind of laying out the three forms of capital besides financial capital, the one that most of us think of, financial capital. They are human capital, social capital, and natural capital. And yes, I think you've sort of lightly referenced how you measure them. But I want to make sure for our listeners, many of whom are hearing this for the first time, I want to say one thing and then ask you to reiterate the measurements. The thing that I want to say is that it's profound to me that each of these forms of capital Canon should be measured on its own, have its own distinct measurements. And while not every one of us works at a multinational corporation, even for small to medium-sized businesses, a lot of these are eye-openers, at least they are to me, as I think about how we could measure The Motley Fool and not just look at our financial bottom line. So with that said, Jay, could you take us back real quick through the human capital measurements? I think there are five of them. What are we measuring?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. And actually, David, uh in human capital, unlike social and natural capital, it's not the metrics that are standard and universal. It's the methodology to arrive at those metrics of what the true drivers of well-being are in your particular workforce, in the cultural context of The Motley Fool, for example, as opposed to Mars Incorporated. So you're going to get some variation in what those metrics are. But the way that we work, the way that we look at at human capital is, uh, is that we we uh, collect a significant amount of data that's already existing including things that come from uh, like the Gallup Q12 survey uh, of engagement. Uh-huh. but we also know that the Gallup Q12 survey is uh, is comes up short in actually giving you something that you can work with to uh, to develop the interventions that you need to grow the uh, the human capital along those those variables that are important to your workforce because it doesn't tell you what is actually important mm-hmm. so for example at mars uh, we we did a, an extensive amount of human capital work across its multiple segments and we found a, a very strong kind of cultural uh, culture among Martians, is what uh, they call, we called ourselves, <laughs> so that, uh, that basically the number one driver of well-being in that particular workforce culture, we determined through our human capital methodology, was actually, do managers walk the talk of the values that they espouse? So it wasn't about sort of wage disparity or anything like that. It had to do with, with uh, do your managers, when they talk about the five principles at Mars, for example, and, and how they want to operate as a business, are they really doing that? Are they walking the talk? That was the number one thing uh, for uh, for Martians. So if you can find a way to address that, you actually can can do some of those things that I mentioned earlier, which is drive up talent attention uh, attraction, talent retention, and optimization of performance. The second for for Martians was something called the P O U M effect. Uh, which is actually standing for prospect of upward mobility. Again, this wasn't about how much you pay somebody, but it was about does somebody actually have a pathway of advancement that would give them more responsibility, more independence, more food, mm. actually make decisions and manage and, and move up in the company. So it was really important to know that. And again, you're going to find some of these are different depending on uh, what kind of culture you've built at The Motley Fool. But ultimately, you can measure these in a relatively small number, no more than five uh, variables that together are going to account for what it is that you need to know.
0: Yeah, and so for each of these, um, I remember from the book, you're describing how you can't measure 100% of human capital with a few measures or 100% of natural capital, but you've selected a few for each that capture about 80 to 90% of what you could measure, which for most of us tells us pretty much all we need to know and gives us the right true north for us to make better decisions toward better treatment of the environment or better treatment of our employees.
1: That's a very good point, David, because uh, very often uh, we, we run into this with our own team when we're working with academics. They want 99.9% uh, absolute certainty. In businesses, people are making decisions based on their intuition or their experience. Very often without a true understanding of what the data is telling you. So if we can capture 80% of uh, of what a particular social, human, or natural capital space looks like, that is a lot of very solid information to go on to make uh, make better decisions, better, better business decisions.
0: Thank you, Jay. Let's turn next to what I think of as my favorite here, which was social capital, something that I think we could do a better job with at The Motley Fool, and I want to start measuring it better. So um, you mentioned trust as a prominent part of it. I know there are three primary measures here. Could you just summarize them briefly? How can we measure the social capital that we're creating as enterprises?
1: Yes, that's also a good question. And actually, when we started off, we we knew that if, if the measurement technique we were going to use was going to be useful uh, for businesses, it was going to have to be quantitative in nature. So we'd really have to rely on a survey instrument that was calibrated uh, for the cultural norms of whatever community it was that we were trying to, to measure social capital in. Uh, that's something that's really challenging, which is why we, uh, we knew that we needed to, as a starting place in the research on this, we had to look at qualitative kind of research techniques. Now, qualitative research techniques you would be using, you know, sociologists and anthropologists. They might be sitting in a village in, in Papua New Guinea, uh, watching coffee farmers for seven years before they could really tell you what... Uh, Uh, what social capital looked like and describe it. So what we did was we brought in in the anthropologists and the sociologists to constantly challenge the development economists that were working with us on the the accuracy of the survey instrument. We were fortunate because we discovered uh, through our research that the World Bank in the late 1990s actually had tried to crack this with a survey instrument, and they created something that was quite a nice uh, shell for us to start with. That we've significantly improved upon, and we've modified to uh, to, to use for our purposes uh, in uh, in making it more and more relevant to to the context that we're facing. But basically, what we came out with as we developed this survey instrument and started to test it was a was a methodology where we would actually calibrate the survey instrument to make sure that we were asking the questions in the right way to get. A, uh, the kind of answers that would help us understand social capital in a consistent huh. way. That, because sometimes you, know, you could be in a place like Papua New Guinea, which is the first place we did social capital experimentation. And there's something like 900 languages, and there's not one word that equates to trust in those languages because of the, the peculiar cultural makeup of that society. So we really needed help in the beginning to, to bring in that kind of expertise on the qualitative side to help us understand the nuances of how to interpret data and also how to ask questions. So to, to make a long story short, once we administered the survey, you know, among subsets of populations and communities that we wanted to survey, uh, we, we looked at that data and we were able to, to, uh, to discover that actually trust social cohesiveness in a community and the capacity of that community to work collectively towards a common good were the three variables among the say 60 or 70 that existed that always showed up in every experiment that we ran uh, as together accounting for about 75 to 80% of what the social capital space looked like. This was an enormous breakthrough because something that looked impossibly complex before we started where maybe you would get 8 to 12 variables that would describe social capital in one context. And then maybe another different eight to twelve variables in another context. How could you compare apples to oranges? You can't use it in business. But we consistently discovered that only those three variables were, were sufficient for us to understand and dissect the social capital
0: space. Well, that's great. I will point out apples and oranges are both fruits. So there are we can find these commonalities, and that's basically what you do with social capital, Jay. So and I'm fascinated by that. And I, I do want to mention an example. I'm thinking of my own company because it's 20 years ago this month. Regulation FD, fair disclosure, was passed by the SEC, which basically mandated that uh, Wall Street firms could not be given special information that the public, individual investors like you and me, would not be privy to. Everybody, fair disclosure, everybody gets the same information. And that was spurred and spawned really by a Motley Fool write-in campaign. And the chairman of the SEC at the time, Arthur Levitt, came to our offices the next day. He was excited because he'd gotten it passed. And he credit, he said something like 5,500 letters were sent into the SEC, and the majority of them were people who came from the Motley Fool. So I think about that as an early example of social capital, where we spurred our community toward productive co- cooperation toward a good. So I think back proudly on that 20 year, years ago this month, but you probably can never do enough of that as an enterprise. More is good.
1: That's a great example.
0: All right, and that brings us then to natural capital. You mentioned earlier, Jay, by focusing on the inputs, things like water, and is it being used well or not? And what about soil degradation or um, plastic bottles? You're looking at the inputs, not the outputs, which I thought was pretty brilliant because if you try to measure outputs, it's so complex. There are so many factors, including time. It becomes too hard probably to isolate down to figure out where did that carbon footprint come from. But instead, if you look at how do we treat the air up front, if we just look and I know you focus in the book on a single sachet of coffee coming maybe from Colombia to the UK to a consumer in the UK. And you look at the inputs and you encourage us as business people to look at the inputs uh, and score our natural capital.
1: Yes, natural capital really is divided into two schools of thought, David, and the, the majority of companies, uh, maybe all of them, uh, actually tend to take this outputs approach. Uh, but uh, but we've spent a lot of time working with our partners at the Wuppertal Institute in Germany, which is really have really pioneered uh, this work on the inputs approach, which we think is a is a very practical way in which you can start to uh, to apply uh, metrics to uh, to give you tools and techniques uh, on the input side what accounts for the vast majority of, of natural resources that go into the manufacture of anything from a Mars bar to a, a bag of rice and to an automobile. That we really discovered with the Wuppertal Institute and published on this topic as well, that there are really five core metrics that, that account for, for about 80% or more of the natural capital space. And these are abiotic materials, biotic materials, soil erosion, as you mentioned, air and water use. And not all of these uh, metrics are actually actionable in every business activity. But the ones that are uh, actually can be very, very useful in, in helping managers understand what their options are to manage to more resource-efficient outcomes. So the example that you that you used uh, that you mentioned from the book was an early experiment we did in this space, but it was uh, very simple and it gave us some, some great insights in how this can be useful uh, to managers going forward. Uh, basically, we had it, we were selling. At that time, we had a business segment that was a coffee segment. It was called the Mars Drink Segment. And uh, its flagship product really was a, a single-serve gourmet coffee machine. So we discovered as we started to to dig deeply into uh, the, the value chain of one cup of single-serve gourmet coffee going through one of our machines, we actually discovered through fairly rudimentary techniques of data analysis that uh, that there was only one part of that value chain. And it was a single-serve pack of gourmet coffee that was made out of aluminum foil and it was non-biodegradable that was accounting for about 80% of the abiotic metric on the mm. impact side. And so simply by discovering that and then by being able to point our business leaders to a technology that existed that actually could create a biodegradable pack that could withstand the high heat of a single-serve gourmet coffee system, we could address almost all of one of the, of one of the metrics uh, and really mitigate the, the footprint of that activity and make it more efficient. So another way that we looked at, at natural capital use, David, as well, and you and I have discussed this uh, uh, previously, uh, is that we just, just take a, uh, let's stick with coffee as an example. So coffee, as you're growing it out on a, on a coffee plantation, it needs to be close to uh, to a lot of water uh, because it uses a lot of water. And one of the uses of the water in, in coffee harvesting is after you've harvested the beans, you lay them out to dry, and then you, you extract water. Uh, so you extract natural capital from the local river and uh, and you use it to wash the beans. And the reason you're washing the beans is to get all the acidity off of it. And then this massive amount of acidity, acidity pollutes the water that you then dump right back into the water table. So mm. that makes you a net user of natural capital. And you're actually damaging that ecosystem. And because we discovered that there's a relationship between uh, these non-financial forms of value and one another, and then between them and the release of financial capital, you're actually a drag on your financial capital, but you don't realize that by damaging the water. And you're probably also making the well-being of people go down. So you're probably damaging the human capital. And in the community, maybe you're less trusted because you're polluting their water as you're doing this. So uh, so it's really important to, to know these things. So we've tried to incorporate this into the concept of a, of a mutual profit in the management accounts in the P&L. But once we were able to, uh, to to get an understanding of what we were doing uh, to the water in a particular environment, as a hypothetical way in which we can address this through the, mutual, through the economics of mutuality natural capital approach would be, for example, we discovered that there is a piece of technology that has a dual use, and the dual use is that it can create ethanol uh, when in the off-season when you're not washing the, the beans with this water, and it can be used as a water filtration system to take the polluted water that's come off of the beans and clean it and actually dump cleaner water into the local resource so you be, you go from being a net user of natural capital to a net provider of natural capital which has a, an impact across your your different forms of capital
0: mm, so even better water than came out of the river goes back in and ethanol helps get created as well that's a great that's probably the one that really jumped out to me in terms of an example that's so persuasive to me that, yeah, if you're not measuring what you're doing to that river and you're just counting your profits, you look like a hero until you start to account for all of the effects of the systems that are inside our businesses. And once you do that, you see, you know, there's an opportunity to do it even better, put better water back in the river and help create ethanol while we create more trust and certainly good PR for good reasons for our profitable enterprise. So I love that example, Jay. And I think I'm now going to go to the biggest aha for me in your entire book, and you and I have talked about it offline, so I know you think, I'm right to think that this is the big message from the book. Um, Any gain in one form of these four types of capital helps the other three. It's not a world of trade-offs, so paying more attention to your employees helps your bottom line. Your financial capital, doing good for the environment, helps your bottom line. It helps your human capital because it pleases your employees. It says something great to your customers who trust you more. So I think a lot of us assume that you know, you're going to have to lose to win for the environment. You're going to lose some money to win for the environment. These are all trade-offs. But in fact, a gain in any one of these forms of capital lifts the other three. Jay, this is a powerful insight. I sure hope you're right, and you're telling me you are.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the first thing to really keep in mind, David, is that these are forms of capital and they have value. Human, social and natural capital. Companies create human, social and natural capital. They destroy it and they could leverage it for the advantage of their stakeholders and their shareholders if they simply had the metrics and the management practices to mobilize these forms of capital. So one of the biggest discoveries we found When we started the the research side of this work early on, we started really in early 2007 on this, uh, we we were able to crack, as I said earlier, how to measure with robustness and simplicity uh, and uniformity these non-financial forms of value. So that helped us quite a bit. But the bigger breakthrough was when we discovered a uh, correlation, a very strong correlation between growing the non-financial forms of capital and releasing greater economic performance that then translates into financial capital. And why that was so important, and actually we are just completing now what's called a randomized control trial, which is a very extensive kind of research techniques with our Oxford University partners in one of the first businesses we set up using economics and mutuality, to prove the causality, and we're finding lots of indications that we can actually prove aspects of the causality between the, uh, these forms of capital and the release of financial capital. So you could go you could go into an environment where there's very low amounts of financial capital, almost invisible, like a slum area, for example, uh, or you could go into a place that has a uh, really damaged uh, environment with limited natural resources. You could go into places that, uh, that have uh, low trust and social cohesiveness and capacity to work collectively, social capital, or even low human capital. And you can start to create interventions uh, with your stakeholder partners to grow the social, human, or natural capital. And what you will see, because we see this in the businesses we apply it to, is you see a healthier business ecosystem where obstacles start to get removed to entrepreneurialism. And entrepreneurialism starts to flourish and that releases financial capital. So suddenly you find your business to be of a higher level of performance holistically, but also financially. So in some of the businesses we've started off with in this work, we've actually been able to provide two times the retained earnings in the end by not trying to maximize our shareholder return, but simply by trying to reposition the business activity as solving the problems of the stakeholders within the business ecosystem of that business activity, rather than just trying to extract as much value from the stakeholders as we can for ourselves. And we kind of supercharge that ecosystem and release financial value.
0: Well, we're not going to have time for this full story for this interview. I definitely want the one or from you. But, of course, a, a big part of your book was the case study in Kenya. And you called it Mawa, which is Swahili, as I recall, for flower or blossom. And through your Mars Wrigley gum, it's the Wrigley gum division, you began to go to some of the poorest of the poor areas of Kenya and galvanize by building trust with people on bikes who could sell directly to consumers or to kiosks, people who were not part of the system before, who would have been cynical about this multinational corporation coming in with its product, all of a sudden, they're not just contributing to all forms of capital for that company, but they themselves are being lifted out of poverty. So it's a great story. We can't do it justice here, but that's in part why I love to do Authors in August, because a lot of people are hearing me right now and should and will read that chapter in your book but do you want to give one more minute on mawa?
1: Sure, I mean it's a funny story because uh, when we when we wanted to I, once we knew how to how to uh, use these non-financial forms of value as key performance indicators that it would actually drive performance to build them into the incentive system of business activities. Uh, the president of our Wrigley segment at that time, he said, okay, I love what you're doing. I love the idea. So now go and go and show me how it works, you know, set up a business. And I know it's a social business, so it doesn't have to necessarily be profitable, but try to break even. So he sent us to East Africa. We start working in East Africa and uh, the, the Wrigley team there said, you know, we we love what you're saying and it's exciting, but we don't want you to break our business. So we said, where can we operate? And they said, well, we'll operate in the one place that we can't operate at all and probably never will, which are the biggest slums uh, in all of uh, Africa, happen to be outside of Nairobi, Kenya, and also some impoverished rural areas. So that's where we started. And we really had to take a different kind of approach. So we started, first of all, by creating key performance indicators around human and social capital rather than sales and retained earnings, which we all tracked. We tracked those things from a a baseline. We realized we needed non-traditional types of partners. We needed partners in these impoverished communities that actually had social capital. They had the trust of these communities. A Western multinational did not have that trust. So we had to partner with with, uh, microfinance, entities. We partnered with a big church that was there because they had a lot of uh, parishioners that came from these slums. They made great micro entrepreneurs, an NGO that was trying to uplift uh, impoverished single mothers from the streets. And we were able to uh, to teach these, teach the business leaders, but also the citizen sector organization partners, that it was really mutual for us to partner together to solve the problems in that ecosystem, to create conditions for entrepreneurialism to flourish, and then to track what happened. And it created a, a, a very high-performing uh, business model that we're now uh, through the the, the Mars Wrigley segment uh, are actually uh, scaling up around the world.
0: And let's talk about that next, Jay, because that is in many ways the case study or the proof positive of your economics of mutuality framework. I know you had a big day earlier this week. Could you describe how Monday this week was different from last Monday?
1: Well, Monday was the first day of the rest of my life, as they say. So for for many years, we've been talking to Mars about actually taking this iconic think tank inside Mars that's been around for for more than 50 years outside of the company uh, and actually uh, building it around the concept of the economics of mutuality as being a non-rival good, which, as you know, in business is that uh, Mars, as a non- looking at economics of mutuality as a non-rival good, would mean that you sh- you get more value from sharing it with others and going on a kind of journey of co-creation and discovery mm. than you would by creating an all intellectual property around it. So, what uh, the Mars uh, family has done and the Mars business is that they've they've created a economics of mutuality foundation. Uh, in Geneva, Switzerland, that actually owns a in a hybrid way, a for-profit economics of mutuality solutions consultancy. and uh, And this is this entity is entirely independent of Mars and has to function uh, in very different types of ways uh, to meet the you know the Swiss uh, requirements and tax laws to be able to do something exciting like this. And now we have the capability through the foundation and the solutions business to take what we've learned to other companies, uh, other multinational corporations to partner with, um, with academic institutions even beyond what we're doing now with Oxford and a number of other leading business schools so that we can start to introduce the curriculum around economics of mutuality and really uh, build the learning uh, database uh, for this and share it.
0: And I know some of us are listening to you excited by some of these insights. Jay might want to reach out to you. What's the best way if I'm hearing you right now and I want to start to incorporate the economics of mutuality maybe in my own enterprise, who do I talk to?
1: Well, you can reach out to me, but you can reach out really first through our, our website, which is uh, economics of mutuality. The, the letters EOM is what it stands for. So the website is EOM.org. And that's very easy to understand. And uh, really, you can submit a request there, get in touch with us, and we can uh, take it from there.
0: I want to change gears briefly. Now, a lot of us, my regular listeners, know conscious capitalism. And anybody can Google that and read some more about the four foundations of conscious capitalism. Jay, the first way that I got to meet you and see you speak was at a conscious capitalism conference. Can you give a brief Compare contrast between EOM, the economics of mutuality, and conscious capitalism.
1: Well, conscious capitalism actually is a movement that's been around for a while, as you know, and I know that you're uh, you're very heavily invested in it. Um, I think that um, I didn't realize when I was when I met the conscious capitalism folks, and they took an interest in the economics of mutuality, business model innovation, that um, that Mars actually was a member. Of, uh, of the conscious capitalism movement, See, we're very decentralized, so we' always talk to each other. but here, I was giving a keynote talk at that conference that you were at for conscious capitalism and representing Mars and not realizing we were a member. Well, we actually found a lot of commonality uh, in terms of uh, of the why, so why is it that business needs to change and uh, and what what are the what are the uh, the values that actually are, are are driving those conversations? We were very well aligned on that area, but where I think we had something that could be useful to the conscious capitalism movement was more in the area of how you do it. And so we started to share as much as we uh, we could with conscious capitalism as we went forward. As a member, it was easier to do that because we also wanted to create some, some ownership of uh, of the how you do it in practical application from day 1 uh, david when we started this work we realized that uh, that this has to be very very practical it can't be anything that looks philanthropic in nature and uh, and we have to start to show results as quickly as we can so i think um, working away in the in the not secretive but maybe discreet uh, culture of mars uh, gave us a number of years of, of head start on the on doing the how piece
0: Thank you for that, Jay. Yeah, and a fellow member of the Washington, D.C. chapter of Conscious Capitalism is my friend Dan Simons. And listeners will recognize Dan from just a few weeks ago when he participated in our uncomfortable conversation. Dan oversees, helped co found the Farmers Restaurant Group. And I just thought part of your book in Completing Capitalism, Jay, you're talking about at one point the supply chain for farmers versus, let's say, oil companies. You point out a big difference, which is that the oil companies at the point of extraction, like where the hard work happens, a lot of that money is earned by the company. Whereas at the point of extraction for farm goods, farmers don't typically participate in as much of the value of what they're doing. So it ends up being Starbucks makes a lot more money off coffee than the farmer, for example. And I like Starbucks, too. But it's an interesting contrast you mentioned in the book. I I was wondering if you knew what Farmers Restaurant Group did, because I think it's pretty cool. Dan, as he told me the story of his company, it's the North Dakota Farmers Union, which has 50,000-plus members. And he went and met with them with his co-founder, Michael Vukarevich. And they basically gave Farmers Restaurant Group not just a deal to sell all their produce to Washington, D.C. restaurants, but to actually own, in majority- farmers restaurant group. So I thought it was kind of a beautiful example of conscious capitalism where you start to share the value with the farmers themselves. At one point in the book, Jay, either you or Bruno writes this, that farmers tend to be interested in the remuneration of their work, but not as much in a value sharing type of proposition. You say this likely affects their behavior in ways we do not yet fully appreciate. Well, Dan anyway, wanted to let you know that that's not always the case or his perspective, that in fact, farmers do want more value than that. And Farmers Restaurant Group is kind of a good example of a new model.
1: No, I'm glad you raised that. And they're, they're an impressive group, David. But you also reminded me, actually, in, uh, in what you started to quote from the book, of, uh, of a piece of economics of mutuality that we didn't discuss. I could just spend a minute on it if you don't mind, which is actually what we call shared financial capital. So I think what you were alluding to when you used the uh, the energy sector versus the agricultural sector was, uh, was really, uh, we, we decided to take a look at financial capital first, even before we started looking at human social and natural capital. And the reason we wanted to do this is because we were looking at uh, the supply chains in the coffee business of Mars that had to do with this drink segment. And we realized that in cocoa, which is an iconic uh, aspect of uh, of Mars's business, cocoa. There's very limited places where you could get supply of cocoa, so we have very limited options on where we could work. But actually, in the in the drinks business on coffee, uh, we were a smaller player, so we could actually source coffee from wherever we wanted. So what we wanted to do was give the uh, the leadership of the drinks segment some idea of what the distribution of of value. Uh, how it was shared across the value chain from the farmer through the uh, manufacturer in the middle and the distributor all the way to the consumer at the end. So from from soup soup to nuts, basically, how is value distributed? We adjusted that for what's called purchasing power parity because the dollar is worth a different amount uh, depending on on where you are and what kind of context that that you're working in. We also made adjustments for the kind of risk that each uh, member of a value chain would actually uh, invest, risk an investment uh, in that in that activity. And what came out of this, very briefly, was just a, a curve of distribution that showed uh, that the farmer was actually the steeper the curve of distribution, the uh, the worse off the value distribution was, the less equitable it was. And so it made the the supply chain more uh, unstable. If the farmers were getting so little Squeezed. and before, and yeah. the manufacturers were getting so much. Uh, or the distributors were getting even so much more than the manufacturer, there was a problem there. And that supply chain was probably uh, unstable. And so we offered the the business, uh, through a quick analysis like that, some options on what they could do. They could either take the management decision to create interventions to slightly flatten that curve, to make it uh, a bit more equitable in terms of how value is distributed, to make it more stable and resilient. Or they could just go and find another curve of distribution from a different supply source that was that looked better, that would give them a better opportunity to do that. So so that's a part of economics and mutuality as well that, that's embedded in this.
0: Well, and maybe leave it to Mars, a company that's so long-term minded, to realize that its supply chains are critical to doing well. So the classic, squeeze your supplier to boost your financial profit, Not a great idea. It is funny that we didn't talk too much about financial capital. That is the fourth type. But of course, our focus uh, this week has been on the other three, because I think that's the eye opener for a lot of us. Well, time is running out fast. Jay, I have maybe three quick questions to close with. The first is maybe about the nature of multinational corporations versus governments. So I think a lot of people seem to me increasingly disaffected in terms of thinking about their political leaders. There are a lot of questionable political leaders worldwide. Um, There's a lot of, I'm dissatisfied with Congress, this kind of a thing. On the other hand, we're seeing the growth of multinational corporations. And traditionally, people don't like those, usually. they like We don't like the big fat cat corporations coming in here. But at least for me, some of my best stock picks, some of my favorite companies, companies that I buy happily from, like Amazon, these companies are really powerful on their own. Jay, at one point, you quote, maybe you can update the numbers, of the world's largest economies, how many of them are not countries but corporations?
1: I think the last time I looked at those numbers, David, was uh, late in 2019, and it was at least 67, uh, maybe 69 of the 100 largest economies in the world were actually multinational corporations. So if you go back to you know, Milton Friedman and his financial capitalism approach, which is really about the sole social responsibility of business being to maximize shareholder returns, that's the sole social responsibility of business. How could that be true when uh, corporations are larger than nation states in terms of the size and impact of their economies? And because of globalization, you know, they're the only entities that really have the, the ability to, to address meaningfully the biggest challenges of society and the environment that we're facing today. So they've got to step up to the plate. And economics of mutuality gives them the ability to do that in a way that's scalable and makes them even more resilient and profitable as they go forward.
0: In fact, right near the end of the book, you say the true purpose of what might be considered a great company in the future is not just to make money for shareholders alone, and I'm quoting, it's more about how they can thoughtfully and intentionally consider what social problems they can solve by leveraging the power of their enterprise for this purpose. And this is a commonplace, not just true of your book, but it's still insightful, I think, for a lot of us to remember that multinational corporations, can go across any boundaries. They are not sovereign states limited to certain parts of the world. That's part of the power of business. It can span all borders.
1: So one thing I would just want to leave you with, David, and your listeners, is that the and maybe this is a bit provocative, uh, but I think you'll find some truth in it, which is that the purpose of business is not to create profit. The purpose of business is to create profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet mm. or to profit by creating problems for people and planet. I think that's absolutely central That's central to what it is that we're doing here.
0: We should double underline that in the transcribed version of this. It will be, in fact. Okay. Jay, before I let you go, I have to ask you as well about COVID. Now, COVID-19 has shown up since you published Completing Capitalism. And there are points in in the book in which you wonder aloud whether this system is going to buckle back upon itself, or whether the whole thing needs to be thrown out and rethought. Do you see COVID playing a role in that now? Is this part of your view of the future as you published the book in 2017, or is this a black swan for you too?
1: Well, I think that we uh, we said in the book, uh, we, we said quite a lot in the book actually about how the, uh, the rules of the game of the of the global economy, which is now a knowledge economy, it's not a services or financial economy, have changed dramatically uh, along with the, the quantities of financial capital that are in the system vis-a-vis what is needed for social, human, and natural capital. So we have a real dysfunction here where businesses are not moving fast enough to evolve their model to create a more complete form of capitalism so that they can Actually, operate in the new context that we find ourselves in, and I think Bruno and I have been, had been talked in the book a lot about about a uh, not a black swan event per se, but there being an externality, something that could be a shock. Maybe it would be a run on the banks in a country like Spain that then uh, was a was a contagion, or it might be you know a move to uh, to invade a a country somewhere. Uh, we didn't know what that external shock would be. We certainly didn't think that it would be or didn't predict that it would be a global pandemic but we did predict that it would be an externality that would be global in nature and it would actually tip the scales and force companies into a situation where if they wanted to survive and not not just to thrive but also to survive they really needed to uh, to adjust their models to account for the forms of value these other forms of capital that their current models don't allow them to uh, manage in any way or to mobilize in any way because they don't know how to do it. They don't have the metrics. They don't have the management practices. So uh, I think this COVID event, you know, you could call it a black swan because nobody expected it to, to be so, uh, so widespread and damaging to the economy. But it was going to happen. It was inevitable. And it just pushed us closer to the, to the brink uh, of having to do this right now and really not having a choice. In the matter, we've got to change our models. We have to become more inclusive businesses. We have to expand our definition of performance to include non-financial forms of capital. And we don't have to trade anything to do that because it also delivers financial capital, we found out.
0: And it's a brilliant insight. And indeed, it's an encouraging insight during this time of a lot of questions about systems, whether it's systemic injustice or the system of capitalism and how to do it better. Certainly those of us who love conscious capitalism, those of us who are publishing books about economics of mutuality, years ago i think i have foreseen what we need to do next so i'm excited and enticed by that last question for you jay i love the analogy that you and bruno have right at the end of the book in a section entitled the responsibility of knowledge you talk about a progression in business consciousness with an analogy toward astrology to astronomy can you just repaint that picture for my listeners as we conclude
1: right well the uh the astrology to astronomy thing is, uh, is Bruno's, so I don't think I can go into that uh, too, too much in depth. But I think what he was talking about is, is moving from a situation where we're doing a lot of, uh, of guessing and there maybe is a lot of superstition uh, and just assumptions about the way things are to actually moving into something that is more scientifically provable. Uh, and, you know, when we talk about uh, purpose, for example... Uh, when we start work on the economics of mutuality, the very first thing we have to do is convince the business leader that it's not the firm and its profit that's at the center of its business ecosystem with the stakeholders on the outside. It's actually the, the sense of shared purpose That brings those stakeholders together. That's important. And the firm is just one of many stakeholders. Well, that's a Copernican revolution. If you want to go back to astronomy and astrology, you know, if you remember Copernicus was the one that said it was the sun that was the center of the universe, not the earth. And then suddenly all the math made sense and everything else made sense. And that's what we see uh, putting purpose into practice as strategy through this economics of mutuality going forward.
0: Well, Jay Jacob, you've been very gracious with your insights. Thank you for sharing all of them this week on Rule Breaker Investing. We wish you the best in your new journey. An entrepreneur, if you will, a business consultant from academia, now out there in the marketplace uh, with a great system to help the marketplace. So we wish you the best with economics of mutuality. Thank you, David. It's been a privilege. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I hope you learned as much as I did. I certainly recommend reading the book, Completing Capitalism in Full, It's a pretty quick read, very appropriate for August, very au courant with a lot of what's happening in our world today. You know, right at the end, as you heard me, I asked Jay about that transition from astrology to astronomy. And he said, well, that was Bruno's section. And as somebody who's co-authored a bunch of books with his brother, I certainly understand that one guy takes one section, another takes another. But that section was called the Responsibility of Knowledge. And One of the points made is simply that once you do find out something, once you do know the truth, you have a responsibility to share that knowledge. And as I think back on last week's mailbag, what was the title of last week's episode? It was called The Knowledge. And I think a lot of you who are listening last week will know exactly what I mean when I say that when we get knowledge, we have a real responsibility at that point to share it and to improve the world around us. Well, thank you again for joining me this week. A reminder again, Jeremy Brown, the author of the book Influenza, the 100-Year Hunt to Cure the Deadliest Disease in History. And even as bad as COVID-19 is, I don't think it's going to get anywhere close to the Spanish flu of 1918. Jeremy Brown with both a historical perspective, but of course, as the Director of the Office of Emergency Care Research at NIH, the National Institute of Health today, He will have some great insights about where we are with COVID in our world now. So please join me and Jeremy next week. In the meantime, have a great week. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Molly Fool
1: may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.